thanks we could uh, gather together today as we uh, think about um, Good Friday. I was uh, thinking there'd be many, many churches and many, many groups of people right across the world that'll be gathering today, probably from um, stretching from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. There'll be people right across the globe. Obviously, time zones will change a bit, but there'll be people everywhere reflecting on on the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, on putting their hearts and their minds towards Calvary's Hill from 2,000 years ago as we think about uh, this momentous day and this history-changing day as well. They'll be singing songs and they'll hear the Bible being read as we had uh, Doug read to us today as well about a suffering Jesus Christ uh, bleeding and dying uh, on a Roman cross in the country of Palestine about 33 AD. People will break bread and they'll drink a cup of juice as very symbolic reminders again of uh, the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, who was nailed to a cross, dying alongside uh, two criminals next to him. That will be happening on one hand, and yet at the same time there will be people gathering together for different reasons, probably not thinking about Jesus at all. They could be just happy to grab a cup of coffee and sit in the sun with some good friends and uh, enjoy some uh, a public holiday. Maybe even lots of camping this weekend as well. Maybe even looking forward to some chocolate Easter eggs. People will be thinking about Easter in that way. Surprising to know, even though there could be large numbers of people doing that, uh, that many of these people still wonder what Good Friday is all about. I read an article earlier this week that uh, Google, when they gather their stats... One of their highest hit days is around Easter and particularly on Good Friday. And the question that is most searched is what is Good Friday all about? So people are wondering what's happening as perhaps churches and groups gather together. What is this Good Friday all about? And I'm sure as they type that into Google and comes up with some answers, I'm sure the next thing they might be asking themselves is, well, what's the cross about? Why a cross? Where does the cross figure in this thing called Good Friday? Why do these Christians gather in buildings or gather under trees, wherever they might be, whatever country they could be in, why do they have this celebration around a cross? Because that's similar to saying, why not celebrate an electric chair? Why not do that? Or why not celebrate a hangman's noose? Or the gallows. It's really the same thing. Or it could be like, why not celebrate a firing squad? (laughs) Why do Christians make such a big deal out of an act of torture? It's a real question, I believe. Why do our churches prominently display a symbol of execution and horrible death? Because what you see, that's what it is. That's what the cross is. It's a picture of execution. It's a picture of a horrible, horrible death. If the people of today uh, saw, sorry, if we, the people of today, saw it the same as they did two thousand years ago, it would be like churches really putting up there in lights a picture of a hangman's gallows on the front of their cross, on the front of their building, and they would say, "Come and join with us." And that would be the main symbol as the hangman's gallows on the front of their church. Welcome and be a part of us. And as they walk in, they would see a hangman's rope and noose hanging from the rafters. And they say, welcome to our church. It seems really foreign, doesn't it? 
you probably wouldn't want to go in there if you saw that on the front of a church or the front of a building or if you saw a hangman's noose hanging down from the rafters. You think, I don't want to be part of this group. But that's what the cross is all about. It's about this horrible execution. It's about this symbol of pain. In a world that makes a big deal about the bold and the beautiful, the church makes a big deal about death and execution. So why a cross? What is it about the cross on Good Friday that asks this question, why the cross? See, we live in a culture today that is known as post-Christian. Post-Christian. That is today, our Western culture or society is like a ship that has cast off its ropes and its moorings from the port of Christian foundations and it has drifted off into the wide, wide ocean of do what you like, when you like, how you like. That's where our Western culture and Western society is today. As long as you don't hurt anybody in the process, you can go and do what you like. Western culture itself was built on Christian foundations. And a generation or so back, if you went there, people did have an idea about Jesus and the cross. But two decades on, it's it's only really happened over the last two or three decades, where we have people now that have no idea about the cross. They have no idea about what Good Friday is. Hence, people are going to Google and saying, what's this all about? Because in the last few decades, we've drifted away from our Christian foundations that the Western culture has been built on. So we ask this question, why a cross? To see, to help us understand the cross, we've really got to grasp a couple of really big ideas. And so to get some understanding around that, the first thing we've got to grasp is, is the nature of God in his holiness. And secondly, we've got to grasp the nature of humans, us, in our unholiness. To get the cross, we've got to see a holy God and an unholy self. God's holiness, it's an often overlooked attribute or aspect of the God that we serve, of the God who's created us. We sometimes can easily skip over the holiness of God. In the Bible, in the Old Testament alone, the word holy is mentioned 500 times. It's very prominent. And every mention of the word holy in the Bible is either directly connected to God or something about God. Another way of looking at it is like this. If you've got the average uh, page length of the Old Testament, it's about a thousand pages thereabouts. It's like every second page in the Old Testament, particularly in the Bible, there's a mention of the word holiness or holy to do with God. In the Bible it says in Leviticus chapter 19 to this... Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's one of those mentions in the Old Testament. It just simply states, I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy. You see, to answer why the cross, we have to see God's holiness. You might say, well, what does the word holy mean? What do we think of when we see or hear the word holy? I think sometimes people conjure up this idea of some monk living up in the isolation of the hills where he bakes his own bread and makes his own clothes. 
we sort of get this picture of somebody that must be a holy person because he's, that's what he's done. Maybe someone who's serious and joyless, not so much joyful when we think of the word holy. The word itself, the word holy, means to be cut off from or separated from. And perhaps that's where the monk does come in because he's actually cut himself off from the world and all of its temptations and desires. He's separating himself away from that. The word holy also means to be morally pure. Morally pure. And I guess a good picture of that, although it's probably lost a bit of its uh, meaning now, a good picture of that, though, is the colour of the wedding dress a bride wears. You might say, why does a bride wear a white dress? The white dress there is to signify uh, purity and innocence of that bride. Something that is pure, undefiled. Something that is um, of innocence. If we draw those two thoughts together here and think about this word holy, we get this idea of separated from and morally pure as we think about this word holy. If we begin to see that, we begin to get this picture here of God in holiness. We need to see that God is utterly and totally separated from all evil and is beautifully morally pure at the same time. We need to think about God in this situation where there's not a trace of evil within God whatsoever. There's not a hint of corruption in the person of God at all. There's not even one thought of deception or wrongdoing in God's nature. To think about God and His holiness, we need to see there's not even the slightest sign of impurity in the heart of God. God is utterly holy with not even a hint of evil or bad within Him. The Bible actually talks about God's holiness as an object of beauty as well. In the Psalms, in Psalms 96, it says this, Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour or the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The holiness of God is something that is strikingly beautiful and blinding in its purity. It is glorious to behold. So pure is God's holiness, so beautiful is God's holiness, that when anything is compared to it, it falls away into nothingness. It is a bit like the bride when she wears that white dress of purity and innocence. She is the one who sort of blows everybody else away as far as dressing is concerned at that particular time. Nothing compares with that bride. This is God's beauty and wholeness. So the picture we see here is we answer why the cross. We have to get this blazing picture of God's purity. We have to get this absolute fixed in our minds, this utter separation from evil is what God is in his wholeness. God cannot even be tempted by evil. There's nothing whatsoever that is wrong, bad or evil about God. God is holy. If we think about ourselves, though, to understand or ask the question, why the cross? 
We have to say that we are unholy. The opposite to God. We don't like to think about that. We'd rather dwell on the positive side of life and, and our better attributes and, and the perhaps more talkable things about ourselves. Rarely will we get honest and think about ourselves in an unholy way. But to get the cross, that's how we have to see ourselves. So who are we in God's sight? Who are we? Uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, where we are created by God, that we are created in His image, made in the likeness of God. We are rational, moral beings who are able to make free choices in life. When God created Adam and Eve, they were pure and they were innocent. They were holy and they were made in the image of God. There was nothing evil or wrong with them at all in the beginning. They were holy people. God placed Adam and Eve in a garden to live. And it's here that God put one tree that they were not to eat from in the midst of this garden. This tree signified their obedience to God as their creator. Would they obey God as their creator and would they submit to him as their Lord? This tree was the knowledge of good and evil. And at this stage, they were good. They were holy. But if they ate of that tree and disobeyed God, then they would become evil and then they would know what evil was all about because they just disobeyed God. God also told them, if you eat of that tree, that you will surely die that the day you ate of that tree. So there was a massive cost here to pay if they chose to eat from that tree. They would then know the knowledge of good and evil and they also would die. What did Adam and Eve do with this one tree in the Garden of Eden? Well, they made a fully informed and rational moral choice to disobey God. To go against God's only command in that whole of that garden. After being tempted by Satan, believing his lies, they ate of that tree. And something happened immediately that they took a bite of that fruit. In an instant, something happened. Something dramatically changed. Prior to that fruit, the Bible tells that they were both naked and they were unashamed. Innocence. Purity. The moment they ate, the moment their teeth broke through the skin of that fruit, they realised something. They looked at each other and said, we are naked. And they were both ashamed at that point in time. They went off to cover themselves with fig leaves to cover their shame. They discovered what evil was in an instant. They went from pure and innocent to guilty and shameful in just one bite. They disobeyed God. They went from holy to unholy in an instant. This unholiness has carried itself right throughout all humanity to this very day and will continue on carrying itself out through that. We are all infected by this uh, unholiness with the same fate of disobeying uh, just as Adam and Eve have done that as well. 
this decision of self-rule or this act of disobedience had now separated Adam and Eve from God. They were cut off from him because they are unholy. They are now cut off from God. And what Adam and Eve didn't bargain on this particular time was this. When they cut themselves off from God, they now had no way of bringing themselves back into a state of moral purity or holiness before him again in their own power or their own purity. That was gone forever. They are now broken and they are cut off from God. You see, this is who we are. This is who we are. We are an unholy creation before a measureless holy creator. And we have no way of making ourselves holy again or pure again or innocent again in our own strength. It can't happen. We, humanity, have a problem. It's not a little problem. It's a massive problem. It's a problem that is way beyond us. We've earned that penalty of death. When Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. They were cut off from God, and they could not make it any way back to them in their own strength at all. So how do we become acceptable then again to God? How do we get to be morally pure or innocent again before God? This is the massive problem that humanity has. Well, it's here where the cross steps in. It's here where the cross makes sense. The cross is God's dramatic intersection, as it were, where holiness meets unholiness. It's like this intersection of two roads where holiness meets unholiness. It's God's infinite wisdom of displaying his holy nature now converging with our unholy nature in us as his creation. The cross becomes an act of God to do what we could never, ever do in ourselves. The cross is a place where, God's, where God displays his pure, matchless holiness with such clarity. The cross is also where God displays his measureless love and grace and mercy to unholy people. The cross is the wisdom of God. The cross was always in God's mind, even before the world was created, even before Adam and Eve were created. The cross was always God's plan to display his glory to an unholy world. In Revelation 13, it tells us this, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. It's a picture here at the end of time where God's looking back and saying, before the foundation of the world, there was a lamb who was planned to be slain. Before Adam and Eve were created, it was always in God's heart to have the cross to display his glory to this world. The cross was God's way of bringing unholy people back into relationship with a holy God. And we saw in that verse there, there's a lamb. There's a lamb that was slain. Who is that lamb? Who is that lamb that we're talking about here that was predicted and planned before the foundation of the world? The Apostle John helps us to see who that lamb was. 2,000 years ago, he recorded this for us. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John seeing Jesus coming toward him. And he says, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John gets a vision here of who this Lamb is. This Lamb that's even planned before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in human form, is that Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, that Lamb, is brutally slain on a Roman cross of execution. The cross in Roman times is reserved for the worst of criminals in society. The cross is there for those who committed the most atrocious crimes possible in culture or in society. If you're going to commit a crime like that, the Romans would say, then we'll treat you like an animal and we'll just nail it with this piece of wood and leave you up there till you die. It was for the worst of the worst criminals. The cross is for evil, degraded morally and maliciously impure people. The cross was set aside for those people to make it a clear statement to the rest of the community. But Jesus, we are told, in the Bible, is a lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot. In other words, Jesus is totally innocent of any wrongdoing whatsoever. Yet he's on this cross. He's on this cross. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at that time when Jesus was on trial, he comes out and says this telling statement. He has done no wrong. Why should I crucify him? Even Pontius Pilate knew there was nothing wrong about Jesus. Yet, Jesus goes to the cross. Pure, innocent, morally pure, holy beyond all description. So we ask ourselves then, so why the cross? Why the cross? Before God, we, us humans, we are the guilty criminals who've defied him. Before God, we, us humans, we are the guilty party who have rejected him. Before God, we, us humans, are the ones who've consistently lived unholy lives. That's who we are. Because of our sin and our brokenness, we have willfully cut ourselves off from God, our holy creator. So what does God do? God sends his son Jesus to take our place on that cross. We should have been on that cross, paying the price of our sins, paying the penalty that we have deserved and we have earned. Jesus the innocent represents us as the guilty criminal who bears our crimes against God. Jesus the innocent pays our price. Jesus pays our price on the death that we deserve to die in our place. And it's here then that we find the forgiveness that God offers to an unholy people. He makes us holy again because Jesus takes our place. So why the cross? Couldn't God just send an angel to do something? Couldn't God just sweep all of our sins under the carpet and say, oh, look, it's all right, don't worry about it? Why the cross? God couldn't remain holy if he did that. He would not be a holy God if he just swept our sins under the carpet. It's a bit like if we had a judge in, the, in a court of law who had a convicted and guilty rapist before him. And upon sentencing, this judge on this particular day said, look, I'm having a good day today, I'll let you off. 
you can go free. If we saw that, if we spoke to the victim who was raped, what would they say? Judge, don't you care about me? Do you know what he did to me? How does he get off free? You would say, that's not a good judge who's done that. And God didn't do that. God didn't let us off. God sent his son to take our place and to bear our penalty of sin. God's nature of holiness is not compromised and will never be compromised. And the cross displays that for us. Gloriously. God makes this deafening statement of the cross. I am a holy God and I will deal justly with sin. Why else for the cross? The cross is also where we, God makes an equally massive statement. I'm a God who delights in love and mercy and grace. God sends himself and his son out of grace to take our place at the cross. And here in this incredible event, he demonstrates that love and mercy and grace for us in such telling, telling ways to rescue a people who cannot rescue themselves. The cross shatters human pride and self-promotion by humbling us to see what Jesus has done in our place. It's a glorious magnification, as it were, displaying the wonders and the glory of God at the cross. You see, this is why Christians all over the world come around a symbol of execution with such deep, deep meaning. It's much more than just a picture. It's what's taken place on the cross. It's who has taken place on the cross where we see God's holiness converge with our unholiness. And then we come and we glory in Christ Jesus for taking our place at the cross. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are gloriously holy. And we thank you, we praise you that God, we who've come before you as unholy, you've accepted us in who uh, in what Christ Jesus has done for us at that cross. So I pray today, please refresh our hearts again as now we approach this time as we think about the communion table and we think about these symbols and we think about the cross and we think about what Jesus has taken upon himself. Let the cross go deeper in our hearts than to speak of your justice and your holiness, but also to speak about uh, your amazing grace and mercy towards us as well. Thank you, Jesus. If I could have Marlene and Jamie just to grab those um, communion tables and hand them out, that would be great. Uh, The significance of the cross is never to be lost on Christians. On the night before the crucifixion of Jesus, he led his disciples uh, through what we call the Lord's Supper, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. It was on this occasion that Jesus wanted this to be remembered for all time, for all time. And we capture it here in Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22, 14, it says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's a picture of Jesus resolved with deep determination to carry out the work of suffering that he knew was planned before the foundation of the world. He wanted to share this time earnestly with his disciples. 
So it would be indelibly etched into their minds. Verse 17. He took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm sure they didn't get the full understanding at that particular time of what was taking place. But I think afterwards it really did dawn upon them. This piece of bread that was handed out to the disciples on that night, symbolically, but powerfully, would have reminded them of the body of Christ that they saw the very next day, broken, bloodied, bruised, and, and uh, as it were, impaled that cross. A vivid reminder, this was the spotless Lamb of God who was taking their sins upon Himself. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Take this cracker, he says, and remember that that is what it is that symbolises me. And likewise, verse 20, after that, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The same thing, this cup would be passed around, this cup of juice, which would symbolise the blood that would freely flow from the cross, speaking of that shed blood of forgiveness that has washed us and cleansed us. You see, this is the central stage of the Christian faith. It is the cross. It is the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. It is what he has done for us to rescue and to save us. when we hold these emblems in our hands today, they are symbolic, but very, very powerful reminders. The broken cracker resembles the broken body of the innocent, spotless Lamb of God. With all of God's justice and condemnation poured upon him in full measure, without reserve. And when we hold the cup, the cup is the blood that freely flowed from him. That without the shedding of blood, without the cross, there would be no forgiveness of sins and we would be hopelessly lost. Hold these today. Think about that spotless Lamb of God 2,000 years ago in that dramatic history-changing, world-changing moment of time planned yet before the foundation of the world would bring about our forgiveness and reconciliation with God and bring us back to a glorious relationship with Him. Take that cracker now and eat that cracker as we think about that. this cup also drink this cup again reflecting on God's holiness, God's justice but also God's grace and mercy and forgiveness towards us as well. Let's drink the cup.
we're just going to uh, finish with one song now as we just reflect again on the cross. Thanks, guys.